The scripture we're focused on today comes from the sixth chapter of Mark's gospel. Mark writes, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work at him, with him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Stephen. It's good to be with you. In the late 1800s, the Russian playwright Anton Chekhov proposed a literary principle that came to be known as Chekhov's gun. And the basic idea is that every detail within a plot of a story or of a play 
has to kind of somehow move the plot forward. It has to contribute to the overall narrative. If it doesn't move things forward, then it doesn't belong in there. In his own words, he put it like this. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. These loose threads or kind of irrelevant details in a story, they end up usually leaving an audience disappointed at at best or confused and angry at worst. And it's one of those intuitive pieces of wisdom that was always there. He was just one of the first ones to put words to it. The details and economy of language often are the dividing line between good storytellers and great ones. One of the reasons that I love the Gospel of Mark is that out of all of the Gospel writers, he somehow has the most to say in the fewest words to do it. His architecture of his storytelling is, uh, is dramatic, it's, it's complex, it's purposeful. And it's a feature of his literary style to, from time to time, begin a story that is rich in all kinds of details and then break off the flow of that original story to go in an entirely different direction that seems totally disconnected to what he was talking to in the first story, only to then kind of come back around to that original story and button it all up. Now, some scholars call this Mark's sandwich technique, and we've already seen it a few times in the gospel so far. In chapter 3, Mark starts out with this story about Jesus' uh, family who are trying to restrain him. They think that he's, he's gone crazy and they, they want to keep him from getting hurt. And then breaks that story off with another story about how the Pharisees and the teachers of the law say that the reason that he's doing all of these things that he's doing is because he is possessed by a demon. And then he circles back around when his family shows up and Jesus then gives a redefinition of what the family of God is. Those who have faith and eyes to see what he is up to. If you don't have eyes and faith to see, then you're going to conjure up all kinds of crazy stories about who he is and what he has come to do. And then a couple of weeks ago, Catherine mentioned Mark's sandwich technique in a story about a man named Jairus who pleads with Jesus to save his 12-year-old daughter. And then right in the middle of that story, literally while Jesus is on the way, he interrupts the story, breaks off the narrative, and tells a different story about a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. That woman touches Jesus, and Jesus says to her, woman, your faith has healed you. He then goes back around to the story about Jairus and he raises the man's daughter. And now in chapter 6, Jesus has gone home and he has prepared his disciples for the inevitability that they are going to face rejection as they go about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And fresh off that story, we see another sandwich. He starts out with one narrative plot goes in an entirely different direction and then comes back around to that original story. And here's the thing to note. This is why I'm telling you this. Because every single time Mark does this, the key to seeing what he is about and the whole picture is always what happens in the middle of the story. That's the meat in the sandwich. And so I'm going to walk through Mark's telling of this story and then come back around to what it means for you and me. But I have to give you a little bit of a fair warning because the meat in this sandwich is really gnarly. (laughs) 
It's uh, one of those stories that I, I, uh, I texted uh, Tara on, on uh, Friday and said, hey, have you printed the bulletin yet? Because, like, I know we're going through this thing, you know, verse by verse, but we're getting ready to take a break, and nobody's going to notice if I miss out on this whole John the Baptist being beheaded thing. But I didn't do that. So here we go. You guys get to suffer through a little bit of history here. So Jesus goes from Nazareth, and he's teaching village by village, but there is too much for him to do by himself, and so he sends out his disciples on, uh, you know, kind of like their first unsupervised mission trip. And this is really, really hopeful. It's really good news because the mission is a success. And this is kind of an astonishing thing because up until this point, the disciples have been kind of a mess. Their track record has been spotty at best. They have gotten in the way of Jesus. They have showed their frustration with him. They've actually opposed what he is doing. Basically, they don't get what Jesus is all about. But here they are. They go out two by two. And they are, in the words of John Wimber, they're doing the stuff. They are leading with the authority that Jesus has given to them. They are watching heaven break into earth. People are being healed. They are ministering to people's needs tangibly. They are loving their neighbors. But there's something else that's going on here. See, because Jesus isn't just taking a break and letting his disciples go out and do all the work. No, Jesus is telling a whole other story altogether. He gives him some instructions about what to bring. Take nothing with you except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money. You can wear sandals, but don't wear two shirts. I mean, really oddly, weirdly specific stuff, right? I mean, you read this and you're like, what does Jesus have against bread? I like bread. Bread's good, right? Well, all this language is taken straight out of the Exodus. And if you remember that story, God's people have to leave in haste. They don't have time to prepare. They don't even have time for the bread to rise. And they're told to travel light because they don't want anything holding them down as they make their escape into the land of promise. There are 12 tribes in that story. There are 12 disciples in this one. And all of this is Jesus' way of saying to these disciples that Israel's story is reaching its climax and it is going to happen through you. And so he gives them authority over evil spirits to proclaim the kingdom to come into every corner of the world. But the story doesn't end there. Mark does this thing, he shifts the scene, he breaks off the narrative, and he interrupts it entirely, the story of a mission trip with the story about John the Baptist. And this is the part of the story that is pretty messed up, so just hang with me for a little bit longer. Um, the story shifts over to John, and we last saw John at the baptism of Jesus, but now he has found himself in prison in chains for calling out Herod because of his infidelity and his incest. Now Herod is married to Herodias. Names sound really similar. You're going to find out why in just a second. Herodias was first the, the, uh, the wife of his brother Philip. Okay? Like you think your family barbecues are awkward. Like, imagine walking into that. 
Herod Antipas divorces his first wife, then he has an affair with his sister-in-law and marries her in kind of a you know, late night television sort of way. And all of this stuff was well known all throughout the area. It was like all the tabloid gossip. People were showing up for it. Not just in Israel, it was known in Rome because uh, Herod's first wife was the princess of a neighboring country. And when he divorced her to marry his own brother's wife, it was such a source of shame for his first wife's family that her father, the, the father of the, the wife that Herod jilted, who was the ruler of this neighboring country, actually went to war with Herod over it, and Herod lost bad. It was a major political miscalculation, a major disaster for him, because his one great ambition was to become the king of the Jews. And this had, this had all of the juicy stuff that people like to hear about, right? It has sex, it has royalty, it has war, it has religion. I mean, they're just grabbing the popcorn, eating this stuff up. Nobody liked Herod. The Pharisees hated him. The, 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 the religious leaders, they, they hated Pharaoh. Rome didn't really like him. They just kind of put up with him. But out of all these people who really don't like this guy, John is the only one who actually has the guts to stand up and say something to him. And so it raises this, this important question. Like, why would he stick his neck out to, to call Herod out on something that's, you know, you know, his sexual exploits? Why would he do this? Well, there's a history of prophets doing this, speaking truth to power. Uh, Nathan called David to account for killing a man just to take his wife. So there's a little bit of precedent in there. But the real thing is that Herod wants to be king. And John's whole mission is to prepare the way for the king. And so this is his way of saying to Herod, to all of Israel, do not be taken in by this false king, there is a true king coming. This guy is just a parody to which Jesus is the reality. And the thing about it is you note that Herod has this really interesting reaction to all of this. He, he's angered. He puts John in prison. But he doesn't kill him. Because he's both afraid of him and afraid of what public will, will say if, they, they kill this, if he kills this guy who's just known as this holy man. But also he finds Herod fascinating. He will actually take him out of prison from time to time and let him kind of talk to him. It's almost like you can see Herod being torn between these two kingdoms, torn between money and sex and power and ambition and this king who is coming on the scene. Herod's wife, however, not a fan. Not a fan of John at all. And so she gets to work. And this is where it starts to unravel. How are we doing? You guys have been very patient. All right, just a little while longer. Okay, so Herod is at this birthday party, right? And, you know, in the ancient world, these were not, you know, cake and pinata type deals. Like, think like... Uh, a raucous, you know, bachelor party in Vegas or something like that. And so for the evening's entertainment, Herodias puts out her own daughter, Herod's stepdaughter, who is also his niece, to dance. And the implication in the language is that this girl is about 12 to 14 years old. And the implication in the language is that she pleased him, meaning she's not dancing Swan Lake or something cute like that. 
It's really gnarly stuff, but it's also part of a generational trend. This is a genogram of Herod's family. It starts with Herod the Great. If you remember him, he's the one from the Christmas story, the one who massacred all the children when Jesus was born. Well, this guy had 10 wives and he had 10 sons with these wives. And toward the end of his life, he got really, really paranoid about losing his power. And so he went around murdering everyone he thought could betray him, including three of his sons and just for good measure, his mother-in-law. One of his wives was also his sister, Salome, with whom he had a daughter named Bernice, who married one of his other sons, Aristobulus, who was also her cousin. They had a daughter named Herodias. That's the one in this story. She grew up and married her uncle Philip and then had an affair with her other uncle, Herod Antipas, the Herod in this story, the one who imprisoned John. Herodias has a daughter who goes unnamed in this story, which is totally fitting because she is objectified in every way. That daughter is the one who dances for her stepfather, who is also her uncle. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? I told you, it was really gnarly. Okay, and your reward for all of that is, here's a picture of a puppy. <laughs> Just to kind of cleanse your palate from all that grossness. <laughs> Righteous man dies at a birthday party of a pagan wannabe king. Not your, you know, summer pick-me-up kind of story here. And then Jesus, when he, when he sends his, his disciples out with power over the unclean spirits, Mark does the, the next logical thing is he tells you a story where those unclean spirits are literally everywhere. And it's only here that he, at, at verse 30, at the very end of telling this story about John, that he goes back to the original stories where the disciples are telling Jesus about all of the amazing things they've done. It's cause for celebration. It's exciting. It's this climax. They've just had a really great vacation Bible school week, right? They have done the stuff. They've gone out there. They have taught. They have proclaimed the kingdom of God. It has gone out in word and deed. The kingdom is breaking into the world. So what on earth do these two stories have to do with one another? And what do they have to do with us? I mean, why would you put this dark and twisted scene in the middle of this exciting story about the momentum of the kingdom going out into the world? Well, what looks like a distraction, this kind of like literary sleight of hand is actually the theological lens that helps you see the whole picture that Mark is telling. This is Mark's version of Chekhov's gun. It's not an irrelevant detail. It's something that every single follower of Jesus will have to grapple with at some point in their lives. When Jesus sends his disciples out, he, he calls them apostles. He gives them a promotion. Uh, that word simply means the ones who are sent out. And he gives them spiritual authority to proclaim the kingdom, to, to, to preach this whole new way of thinking about the world to everybody and this kingdom that's breaking into the world. And that is still a commission that stands for every single follower of Jesus today. It does not tax the imagination to see that things are not the way they are meant to be. It doesn't tax the imagination to 
believe that there are evil spirits everywhere, even if that's language that might sound a little strange to us. I mean, just this week, we were replaying the shock and the confusion and the lies that took place on January 6th of last year. We've seen unchecked gun violence claim lives in urban, suburban, and rural areas. And we encounter so many disturbing statistics on the ordinary about opioid addiction, about depression and anxiety, about sexual exploitation of minors, that we almost just kind of shrug our shoulders and accept all of this stuff as normal. I mean, if we're honest, we're not even really totally surprised that the Bible tells a story about an underage girl dancing at a party for older men, because that kind of stuff happens all the time in our own city. And maybe getting used to all of this is part of the evil in and of itself. But the problems aren't just out there. The problems are in our own homes with people who think that they know Jesus pretty well, who who think they understand what it is that he's up to. In beautiful, well-manicured homes all throughout our city, families are falling apart at the seams. Mom and dad, they go off to work in a toxic work environment where the unclean spirits tell them that they're pressured to perform all the time or get out of the way for somebody who will. And then they send their kids off to schools who meet the unclean spirits of peer pressure who tell them that, you know, they're going to lose social capital if they practice a little bit differently or if they have views that are a little bit different than what their peers expect of them. And in just the course of a day, you get so much of this all over you that you can't help but bring it home. And so we're all fighting spiritual battles, even if it seems just like ordinary stuff to all the world. The best definition of sin that I know of is whatever violates the shalom, the peace that God intended for all of creation And we tend to think of the violation of shalom as these big things that make the headlines, but it's just as much in all of the little things that remind us how far we have wandered from what God intends for all of creation. The little things that we encounter every single day, that means there's unclean spirits everywhere. But Jesus has come village by village to make sure we have a home in the kingdom. And it's not just that. He has given us authority to take part in his mission. If you want to know what God's will for your life is, it's this. God doesn't care as much as we do about whether we are doctors or, 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 or teachers or administrators or stay-at-home moms He doesn't care so much about any of those things, but what he does care about is what are you doing to fulfill his mission in the world? And wherever you go, you are sent out. You are on a mission, whether that is in Tucker or Decatur or Midtown, or whether that's in your place of work or the PTA, whether that is in, you know, the next grade that you're in in school, whether that is at the dog park or at the AA meeting that you show up to day after day, or if it's your friend that you keep coming to who doesn't understand why it is that you keep coming to church Sunday after Sunday when you could be sleeping in. Wherever you are, you're called, whether it's to your neighborhood, it's right at the place where you do life. And you go into those places bearing witness to the kingdom in both your words and your actions. And I think, you know, some of us are really comfortable with one or the other, right? But as Jesus' disciples, we are called 
to do both. They are inseparable from one another. It's funny, this past week at Vacation Bible School, we shared with our kids about God's mission to the world, how we love our neighbors both near and far and, and all around the world. And on Friday, I spoke about a time when I went to El Salvador. And I knew at the time that it was the most dangerous peacetime country in the world. I didn't know that the year that I went was the year that they had the most murders in the history of the country. Something like 4,000 that year in a space that's just a little bit bigger than the state of Massachusetts. I wasn't nervous at all, though, about going, about getting on a plane, going somewhere else to talk about Jesus, to get my hands dirty, to get my heart broken. I wasn't nervous about that at all. I didn't lose an ounce of sleep over it. But you know what I am afraid of? My son's playing baseball on a team this summer. It puts you in really close proximity with people for a while. And I didn't want these people to know that I was a pastor. Because whenever that gets out, it just gets really awkward. But as I was thinking about that time in El Salvador, I remembered the, the faith, the hope, the love of that community, the, the vitality of the community. There, this small band of brothers and sisters who would give everything that they had just to bless one another. Among other things they taught me is that poverty is not just about not having money. It's about not having a community. They had a community. And so they challenged me to look in the mirror and say, well, what ways are you poor? Sometimes you have to go a thousand miles away to work up the courage to talk to the person who's right next to you. So there I was yesterday, sitting at a baseball game, talking to one of the dads, as you do. And he asked the inevitable question, what do you do for a living? I said, I work for a nonprofit. <laughs> I didn't say that, no. <laughs> I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, right. I'm not religious at all. It's like, great, here we go. But then he said, but I'll tell you, my brother is. And it's actually been really good for him. And we ended up having this great conversation about meaning and life and faith, all while we were just sitting there ready for our kids to play baseball. Sometimes simply being sent is being open to tell the Jesus story wherever you are, in whatever way that conversation comes about. Other times, though, that conversation has not gone well at all. People have left, and they have left mad at me, at what I represent. And there are some of you, I know this, that if it was widely known that you were a practicing Christian at your place of work, it might mean a loss of income. It might mean, it definitely might mean a loss of estimation from your peers, from your supervisors. And for you, part of your discipleship is navigating those relationships and those conversations with wisdom and with grace. See, sometimes when we're, we're called to speak, we're simply called to tell the story of, about Jesus, about what he has done. And sometimes people will accept it and sometimes they won't. And to that, Jesus simply says, shake the dust off and move on. And sometimes the cost of discipleship is those broken relationships. But you have Jesus, and that makes it worth it. 
Other times when we speak, though, we are called to speak up against the evil that goes on in our world. I was reading an article from the theologian and ethicist Russell Moore who recently left his denomination. And for a long time, he was graciously trying to bring about some internal reform. And after a while, he just started having to call people to account publicly. And when he started to do that, the anger and the abuse that was directed toward him went full tilt. He described it as two years of intense psychological warfare. He did not know how tired he was until he was allowed to step out for a season. Just yesterday, a group from this church went to the Legacy Museum down in Montgomery, Alabama to hear about the... Uh, all of the ways that the the history of enslavement has been entangled in this country. And they learned about those who stood against that and the cost that they had to pay. Sometimes when you challenge the kingdoms of the world, those kingdoms push right back. That too is the cost of discipleship. And that's the middle part of the sandwich. That's what Mark wants us to see. Biblical scholar James Edwards writes this. He says, What does Mark intend by bracketing the martyrdom of the baptizer by the mission of the twelve? The sandwich structure draws mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death into an inseparable relationship. And this is exactly what Jesus will later say when he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross and follow me. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to reckon with what it's going to cost you. And for many in the world, this this story about John is just too close. I, I, I read that just last Sunday on Pentecost, bullets and bombs tore apart a Catholic mass in Nigeria, all because they worshiped the king. Now, we do not face that in our context, and no one should. That is not how things are meant to be. But we do carry around a bit of cultural shame. We carry around a bit of social stigma. You've all felt this when you, when you tell that coworker, when you tell that, that aunt that you're a follower of Jesus, what they hear is that you're just a backwards, gullible, naive, bigoted. Whether or not any of that stuff is true, that's what you carry around with you. So if that's kind of the reality that we experience, how do we find the courage to take part in the mission? Well, I think that's where Jesus' instructions to his disciples come into play. He says, take nothing for the journey except the staff. Don't take any bread, don't take any bag, don't take any money in your belts. Wear sandals, not an extra shirt. In other words, he's telling them, you gotta travel light. And you would think if he's giving them such this overwhelming task as casting out evil spirits, you might think he would give them a little bit more in the way of preparation, right? But maybe Jesus isn't about calling the equipped. Maybe he is instead about equipping the ones that he calls as he sends them on the way. Maybe it's in the doing that you get the equipping that you need because you meet Jesus there when he is all that you have. You might find that he is all that you need. And part of that equipping is actually teaching his followers not to cling to any of the stuff that we hold on to. He wants us to travel lightly. And one reason for that is if you're going to participate in the mission of Jesus in the world, of of seeing the the kingdom break in, you can't be afraid of what you're going to lose. 
The things that we try to hold on to in life, they have a way of kind of steering the compass of our hearts toward their ends and away from the kingdom. And that's how we get dissuaded from the mission. There's somebody out there who tells us that they want to take something away, whether that's your status or your position or your reputation. And before you know it, you're worried all the time and the anxiety takes over. And when you're more worried about what you have to lose than you are about the mission that Jesus has called you to, that's when you know you've gotten off track. One of the things that is absolutely genius about this is that this story is, is really a bit of a paradox. I mean, Herod is the guy in the story who seemingly has everything, right? He's got money, he's got luxury, he's got title, position, authority, really weird parties, right? And yet he is the one who is in bondage. He is manipulated. He is fearful. He is numbing himself. He is torn between the kingdom that he thinks he wants and the kingdom that is right in front of him. And then John, on the other hand, he is imprisoned. He is in chains. But John is free because he is living in the kingdom. And this is all the gospel's way of saying that if you want to have a mission worthy of your life, you got to let go of something. And the barest of essentials is a reminder not to trust in yourself. Just trust in the one who sent you. And that will be enough. The calling for us is the same. And there's this last little bit of hope that has us, that when you go, You don't go alone. Jesus sends them out in pairs because he knows that they need community. He knows that they need encouragement to tell the story well. It's actually pretty telling that the only time any of the disciples ever does anything by himself, it's the guy who betrays Jesus. It's a whole nother sermon in there. He calls them into community. You're not alone. We tell the story to each other in here so we can live the story out there. And part of that story is the one that we tell whenever we baptize a child like we did last service. We tell them that when you take on the name of Jesus, you take on a new identity. You take on a new family. And this family is going to carry you when the road gets hard. 